If you have a Bible, you can open it to the book of Romans. We'll be in chapter 14 as we continue our study uh, through the book of Romans today. If you don't have a Bible with you, you are more than welcome to borrow one from us. It is in the pocket of the pew in front of you. And you can find Romans 14 in that Bible on page 892. If you were to start reading scripture from the very beginning, you would read immediately that God created the heavens and the earth by speaking a word, but that immediately we read that that creation was formless and it was void. And so one of the very first things that God does outside of simply speaking creation into existence is to organize and arrange that creation. It will no longer be formless, but he will separate night from day. He will separate the heavens from the land and the seas, and he will separate the land and the seas from themselves. These things will never again be brought together. What God has separated, let it be separated. He considers these things good and right and true. And so as the first three days transpire and he continues to separate these things out to provide order and organization and forming it, he says, it is good. We read that this continues in his calling of a people to himself. That people is to be set aside as holy to him. They are not to be like the nations around them. They are to be distinct and separate. What's more, even amongst his people, he separates out one tribe to be the priests of his people, the tribe Levi. God has the power and the goodness and order to separate things from one another that ought not be brought back together. But he does the reverse as well. He oftentimes brings things together that ought not be separated. We see this in the creation account when Adam and Eve are brought together to be married, never to be brought apart again. The Pharisees and the Sadducees asked Jesus about this. They said, hey, Moses wrote that we just need to give a certificate of divorce and we can go our way from our wives. And Jesus said, he did that because you are of hard hearts. But this is not how it was meant to be. What God has brought together, let no man separate. The end of all of this is that what God separates is wisely separated and that separation ought to be maintained. What God has brought together he is wisely brought together. And that, that union ought not to be broken apart. Yet, this is partially the issue that we see even here. The issue that we have before us today in Romans 14, the issue that faces a good portion of the church today is how are we supposed to know what God has brought together and how are we supposed to know what God has kept apart? How should we handle ourselves when naturally our own opinions differ from other people's. This is an incredibly important matter in the church today, to be able to rightly divide what it means to be part of a body together and what it means to separate from others. Now, it, it, it's not really a matter for our church. I'll say that this is a good thing for us to cover, one, because well, this is where we are in the book of Romans and we just kind of take it step by step. And two, because it is obviously an important thing for us to understand but it's an important thing for us to understand because I think we want to continue to do this well. It doesn't take much to look around and to see how many churches were absolutely floored by what was going to happen in 2020. And those sort of waves have continued out throughout not only 2020, but 2021 and 2022. As churches sometimes hemorrhage people, sometimes they gain people for, for reasons that are not quite clear or biblically sound. What does it mean to break fellowship with somebody? What does it mean to do it over opinions or over doctrine? This is quite clearly a matter where we need to be careful to walk 
alongside one another in wisdom. Paul talks about this here, what it is to pass judgment and to quarrel over opinions. All of these people that he's speaking about in Romans 14 will be believers. He doesn't make it sound like there's unbelievers that are present here. He's talking about how believers are to interact and to have these sort of differences of opinion and yet work through them and and maintain a unity as a body. Don't be wrong. Feuds have always existed. Problems and differences of opinion and differences of how to handle ourselves within a church will always be present, not just here in Rome, but here at Crossway and forevermore down the road until the Lord comes and brings us back in perfect unity through the resurrection of the saints from the dead. We will always have differences of opinion and have to work through these issues. So even while we have done it well, much better than many churches that are around us, all the more we ought to excel in making sure that we know precisely why We handle these things well. Paul will have no easy separations here in Rome. So let us hear what he has to say and give us clear guidance as to how to walk together while we differ in opinions. Let's read from Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die... We die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. As we begin this morning, I want first to make sure that we are being clear. Let's be clear about things. It is important that we are clear into how we are talking about these things, what we are talking about. It's, it's important that we are clear about how we ought to walk together as a church going forward. There's two issues that come up immediately in this section that we have to kind of work through before we can ever start to appreciate what Paul is trying to say here. First, what does he mean about weak and strong? And secondly, what does he mean by opinions? These categories of weak and strong are categories that Paul uses elsewhere. He talks about the same kind of situation in 1 Corinthians where there was also this issue of eating meat. The actual situation there seems to be much different, although it's over the same kind of thing as it is in Romans. 
there in 1 Corinthians, it seems as though the, the issue for believers who used to be pagans was the fact that in Corinth, this meat was being offered in pagan temples to idols. And it was cheap meat. It was a place for people to go and pick up meat. It was almost always offered to idols. And so a lot of believers who were, in Paul's view, weak, would see that meat being offered to idols and would say, if I partake of that meat, then I am likewise partaking in idol worship. And, you know, for their encouragement, Paul says, if you think that that is the case, then you should abstain from that. The strong, however, Paul says, knows that there's only one God, that that meat is his meat. And no matter what kind of fake ritual was going on there, there is only one God in heaven and on earth and therefore, you are free to eat that meat if you choose. He uses the same designation of strong and weak here, both for those who eat meat and those who don't. Here, it is more than, it's more likely that we're talking about Jewish people here who simply want to abstain from eating meat because of cultural considerations. After all, you would imagine it would be pretty difficult if raised the entirety of your life for 30 plus years to say, this is bad, you ought not take this, it's not good for you, to then all of a sudden have it said, oh no, you can partake of it. Now some of you would just run to that because you were always lured into it, but some of you have been trained to say, I, I don't think I ever really want to partake of that. And so here in Rome, it seems like some people are eating while other people are abstaining from it. The whole point of this is to say, well, there are people who are weak and there are people who are strong, and how do we define the difference between them? It's not terribly important, I will admit. What Paul is going to come down to is to say, you should welcome your brother regardless if they're weak or if they're strong, not despise them and not judge them. But I think it is important to kind of define what Paul is getting at when it comes to strong and weak. I think the strong are those who have been so radically changed by Christ that they see the reality that is around them through him and him alone. Basically, what, what they do is they see the world through the reality that Jesus Christ has made for them. And so for the pagans, or the former pagans, who watch as this meat is offered to an idol, they say, well, I know that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. I know that there is one Lord in heaven and earth. I know that there is really no other God that is competing with him. So that meat is free for me to eat. They have had their minds and their, their emotions so radically changed that they feel free to eat that. Same here, for the Jews or for anyone else, they just feel free to eat. The weak have issues with it. They, they don't quite come across as, as truly having incorporated. There, there are cultural issues that are holding them back. Maybe they, they're grossed out by it a little bit because of the way their parents talked about it. Who knows? Who knows exactly what the reason is? But, but they don't quite accept the reality that is truly present. And so they abstain from those things. That being fair to say, Paul seems to make very little distinction between the two. I think he does make a distinction, but in the end, I don't think it matters that much. The idea here of opinions matters quite a bit, though. What does it mean that they are not to dispute over opinions? I think Paul does mean that there are things that are not opinions that ought to be quarreled over, that ought to cause very strong arguments amongst Christians. So you're not to quarrel over things that are opinions, but there are things that are important enough to quarrel over. Those things, we would say, are not opinions. So what are things that are not opinions? Things that are not opinions, I think, are things that are either direct commands from God or are 
sort of directly applicable from commands from God. And so the first part of that's pretty easy. Direct commands from God are not part of our opinion. So when God says, you shall not murder, you can't murder someone and say, well, I was just of the opinion that that was okay. Right? You can say that, that doesn't carry any weight with anybody because we know God says, you shall not murder. Okay? And when caught doing what is wrong, when caught doing something that God clearly and distinctly says you ought not do, or not doing something that God commands you to do, the only response to that ought to be repentance. When it comes to things that are of opinion, there's no repentance. Even if you change your mind later, so even if the people here who abstain from eating the meat turn around years later and say, you know, I, I, I tried it, it was okay, I, I feel free to eat it now, that doesn't mean that they are to go back and repent of their earlier opinion. However, when you cross a clear command from God, there is repentance that is necessary. But not all things are direct statements. I have a lot of direct statements from God, a lot of direct commands from God, but not everything is. There are certain things that we, we kind of want to extend that one step over and say they're not direct commands, but they're associated with direct commands. They're, they're applicable from direct commands from God. For instance, abortion. The church long, long has seen abortion as something that is outside the moral realm for Christians. It is immoral to do this. This is not something that the church has made up in the past 50 years. This is something the church has believed since its inception. But you will search in vain for a translation. You can probably find a translation out there maybe, but for the actual words that mean you shall not commit abortion. It's just not found in Scripture. It's not commanded that you either abort, and it's not forbidden specifically that you should or shouldn't abort. But it is kind of one step over from murder. We, we realize that it's easy to understand how it's an application of murder. If, if all people have been made in the image of God, if they have been knit in the womb as an image of God, then to end that life without complete and utter justification is nothing less than murder. And so we are right to say that this is not a matter of opinion. It is a matter of an application of a direct command of God. Same thing with racism. However you want to define that, it's clear that it's not laid out. You shall not be racist in Scripture. Yet it is clearly tied to the issue of partiality, it is clearly tied to the issue of being made in the image of God, and so we are just one step over from that. Same thing with something like pornography. Pornography is quite clearly never forbidden because the way in which pornography is consumed today is never even thought of in Paul's day. Yet it's clear that if we insist that sex is between a married man and a married woman in an intimate relationship together, then partaking of that in any way outside of that bound is, is absolutely forbidden. And so we would say that that is quite clearly not an opinion that somebody is supposed to have, but is just a direct command from God. However, it doesn't take long before we get into murky waters. There are many things that we might think are direct applications from scriptures, but others don't. So we might see something like tithing, and we might say, yeah, that, that's a direct command from scripture, but what Jesus has done is undo that. Uh, that command doesn't necessarily come over. We're not in the nation of Israel. We're not, we're not supporting in the same way the cult, the way that 
the cult meaning simply the, the priests and, and the entire sacrificial system. We're not, we're not supporting them in the exact same way, and, and we're never actually commanded to do it again in the New Testament. And so we, we think that it's pretty clear that that's not something that we're commanded to do. Now, if you are of the opinion, as others are, that that is indeed the case, that tithing is demanded of you, then we have a difference of opinion as to whether that is a difference of opinion. Again, the waters get murky. We even come to stuff like that when it comes to the Sabbath. Again, something that I think Paul is quite clear of here and especially clear of in something like Colossians 2, if you go back through Christian history, they just really, really wanted to follow the Sabbath. I mean, back in, in the 1800s and 1700s, even here in America, as, as free as they were, sometimes even riding a horse to church was unacceptable. You would walk miles through the snow to get to church because riding a horse was making the horse do work. Kids weren't allowed to play on the Sabbath because that was somehow exerting themselves and therefore work. We would look at that and we would say, no, every day is kind of the same. The Sabbath, those regulations don't don't extend to us anymore. We We think a clear commitment from Paul in Colossians 2 that that's the case. In all of this, what we end up with is, is a spectrum. I, I, what, I, what I didn't want you to think is that these are just really cut, clear cases where, where everything is very neatly organized into different categories. It's not the case at all. On the one hand, there are clear commands from God that are never, ever to be considered opinions that we must either do or we are forbidden from doing. That is well over here, it's command. Then there are things on the far side, which are opinions, like what is the best pie? Okay? It is apple, and you're wrong if you say otherwise, but according to Scripture, I can't command you to do that, even though wisdom and common sense depicts that I should. Nevertheless, over here is opinion, and, and it's clear that it's opinion. It's clear that it's not a command in Scripture. And then we have a spectrum of things that gets further away from opinion and closer to what we would say command and, and stuff that moves away from commands and gets further away as implications from commands and gets closer to opinion. However, what Paul is saying here is when you identify these things as opinions that are not in any way, shape, or form tied to a command of God, then in those situations, we absolutely have to be clear that we are not to judge or to look down on other people for holding those difference of opinions. So the second bit, getting into the actual text that Paul says, while we are wanting to be clear, we also need to be content. We need to be content. Paul obviously thinks that some of these Christians are weak in the faith, but these are to be welcomed, not simply as fodder for bickering over issues and quarreling over opinions, but simply because if Christ has welcomed them, then we ought to welcome them. Notice what happens in verse 3. He says, you are to welcome him in verse 4, or excuse me, in verse 1, and then in verse 3, because God has welcomed him. If God welcomes someone, if it's good enough for Christ, my friends, it ought to be good enough for you. Your opinions, your values, your, your es- estimation of people is never higher than Christ's. Don't think that you are bettering Christ because you've got higher standards than him. Your standards are not better than his. If Christ has welcomed him, then you ought to welcome them. And quite easily do we despise and judge people who have opinions that are different than ours. 
We just, it's just kind of in our makeup. We, we do this all the time. Now, Paul here connects despising and judging to the weak and the strong, respectively. So the strong are those who despise and the weak are those who judge, but I don't think that he means that categorically that's always the way it works. I've heard quite a number of people who might be stronger in their faith deriding in a sense of judging those who are below them who are weaker than them. You can do both, whether you're weak or strong. To look down on those who are not as mature and strong in the faith they're you are is simply to despise them. To judge those who seem to take liberties with the work of Christ is to judge them. But neither of these attitudes are right, nor either of them acceptable. You simply cannot think less of people when not on matters that are commands, but on matters that are only opinions, where they differ from you. You can give an opinion if asked. Paul uses the labels weak and strong. Let's be quite clear. The implication there is weak is bad, strong is good. And you'll also notice whenever Paul mentions weak and strong, he is always in the category of those who are strong. He is always in that category. I don't think that he means that we don't care about the weak and we don't care about the strong and the differences of them. I think he wants to move the weak over to the strong. But he's not ready to quarrel about it. He's not ready to fuss about it. Rather, the over-implication of all of this is this. You are to welcome them. You are to be content. If Christ has welcomed him, then you ought to be content to welcome them as well. I think that these kinds of things occur to me all the time. People come and ask questions. I have a pastor friend who's a KJV-only guy. Now, he's a KJV-only for himself and for his church. Now, I, I think that that's wrong. I think that's wrong for a whole host of reasons. I, I can't even begin. You guys probably know some of those because I mention stuff like that all the time. I mention that the KJV messes this up or the KJV is wrong here. I do that with the ESV and we read the ESV. So it's an opinion that I have though. It's not like I can go to him and say, do you hear this command of God that we, if we are able to read various translations of scripture, ought to do that? I don't have that. And so it's not something that I should ever fuss or quarrel with him about. If he holds to that opinion that the, the King James Version, for all of I consider its faults and its, its difficulties, is the translation that he loves and that he wants to read and he thinks it's better than any other English translation, that's fair. If I consider him weak, I'm not to despise him for it. I'm not to look down at him and be like, you've got this sort of pseudo-intellectual way of thinking yourself through this. You don't really understand how translation's done. You don't understand how interpretation's supposed to happen. You're just, you're weak in faith and, and really, you just even shouldn't be like... There's no reason for me to look down on him about that or to judge him for it. It's just a matter of opinion. At the same time, there's no reason for him to look at me and to think the same things about me because I'm happy to read from the ESV and the CSP and the NIV because I'm happy to take from all of these other traditions. He can't say, well, you just don't have a spine. You just don't want to stand up for what is true and good. You don't want to take the word of God at its truth as, as it was laid out in the KJV. He doesn't get to do that. He also has to realize that it's an opinion. If there's no verse that says specifically, you have to read from all these different translations, there's also no verse, even in the King James Version, that says this is the version. Now, it's called the authorized version, but that's not actually in Scripture. They just put that on the cover. You can ignore it. So there's no verse there that tells us that we have to. It's an opinion, and we can go our separate ways and not bicker or quarrel or fight over it. The interesting part about all this is that we are clear we have to be clear 
that we are indeed judges over things. Paul is not saying that you are never to be judges. In that same book in 1 Corinthians, he tells us that not only will we judge the world as believers, but we judge angels as believers. So you will one day judge creatures that if they appeared today in front of us now, you would be quite certain that your life was coming to a screeching halt. And what's more, if you weren't sure of that, you would be thinking that it is right and appropriate to worship this creature. And Paul says, one day you will stand in judgment over them. So it's not that you're not to judge, but God has not handed this over to you to judge and to take it from him when Christ has welcomed a brother or a sister who differs with you on opinions and to take that judgment away from God and to say, I'm going to judge, I'm going to demean, I'm going to make a pronouncement over this person is nothing less than the very sin that Adam had in the beginning because he thought he could be like God. You cannot do it. God establishes them. God has welcomed them. God will make them stand in his mercy and in his grace. If God is content with that person who rightly confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, who rightly believes that he died for them and rose on their behalf, then who are we to deny them? Be content with what Christ is content with. Thirdly, we ought to be convinced. We ought to be convinced. This is what Paul says in verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You are to be fully convinced. If you are going to abstain from alcohol, then you ought to be fully convinced that that is the right thing to do. If you are going to drink alcohol, you have to be fully convinced that that is the right thing to do. You, you can't say, I'm not sure. Paul, Paul doesn't want you to be wavering on it. He doesn't want you to think that it might be wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways. He says, you need to be fully convinced. And what I think Paul is actually getting here is this idea of conscience. And what he wants you to have is a clean conscience. Your conscience is a tool that God has given to you to help you navigate your way through life. Now, because we have gone through the fall, all of our conscience somewhat bent, a little bit dull, they're misshapen, we, we don't quite have a, a fully working tool, and so when we come up to the commands of God, the commands of God are helping us sharpen and, and form our conscience the way it ought to be. So you should never go against your conscience unless the Word of God tells you to go against your conscience. So if you have a clear conscience about going out and getting drunk, you ought to then have that sharpened and fastened because God's Word says you ought not do that. So you're never to go against God's word, but your conscience is there to help guide and direct you. And Paul is clear. To go against the conscience is nothing less than sin. So when he says you have to be fully convinced, he means you have to have a clear conscience about this. If you take alcohol thinking that it's wrong, brother, it's wrong. If, if you took up a piece of meat and in your heart of hearts, you honestly felt like this was not a good thing for you to do, it is sin. You ought not do it. Paul says you need to be fully convinced. And here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. Because you are to always act in honor of the Lord. What honors the Lord in these cases? Does it honor the Lord for you to go against the tool that he has given you in your conscience? Does it honor the Lord for you to take a drink when you feel like it's wrong 
to take a drink, when you feel like you're dishonoring the Lord by taking that drink? Obviously not. Paul goes on to say this. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. When he says that you need to be fully convinced, he says, what he really means there is you need to be fully convinced that what you're doing is honoring to God. If you are not fully convinced, if you don't have a clean conscience that what you are doing is honoring to God, then you can't do it. You, you just can't. So if that means that you have to abstain from things, brothers and sisters, just abstain. Just, you're not missing out on much, right? There are better things that come in, in heaven. Wait for them. Don't sin before God. If you are clear in your conscience, though, that, that taking it is okay, then go ahead and do so. You are free in Christ to do that as long as you're giving thanks to God. So you have to have a clear conscience and be really, really convinced of what you are doing. Notice what Paul does here. He doesn't just let it kind of sit that we are simply to honor the Lord, but he pushes it further. He says, listen, if we live, we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So what Paul means by that is the entire corpus of your life is lived for the Lord. Christ hasn't just redeemed you at the end of your life so that he can raise you from the grave. But rather, he redeems all of your life. Every moment, every second of your life has been given over to the Lord. Every single thing you do ought to be given over to the honoring of the Lord. You don't get a break from it. You don't get to take a time out here. You don't get to say, well, it only matters what I do at the very end of my life. No, Christ has called forward the entirety of your life. He is the Lord of both your life and your death. So honor him, honor him. But Paul pushes it even further. He says this, for to this end, Christ died and lived again. Not just, not just content with saying, hey, this is about how we relate to Christ. He's saying, this is the entire purpose for Christ being sent that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. He is not just the Lord of those who have fallen asleep. As though we get to live our lives without worrying about how we honor the Lord in any way we want to. What Paul is saying is that he lives and he died and he rose again to show that he was Lord over everything. He is Lord over heaven and earth and under the earth. He became Lord of the earth when he took on flesh and became a man and dwelt over men as a man showing his lordship over all of creation and over all flesh. He showed himself to be lord over death by entering into the tomb dying and rising up from the dead again. He is lord over the dead. So therefore, he came and lived and died so that you might live a life in all of its facets that honors him. So do so. Be convinced in the actions that you take that you are honestly honoring the Lord with what you do. Be convinced in your mind that you are giving glory to God, whether you abstain or whether you eat. Lastly, let us be cautious. Let us be cautious. Verses 10, 11, and 12, Paul provides a warning with something of an encouragement for us. Why do you judge or despise, he says? Why do you despise your brother? Why do you judge your brother? We'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, it's quite clear that Paul's moving on to warning, but I think that this is also an encouragement. Frankly, this sounds a lot like what he said earlier when you deal with enemies. Back in chapter 12, he said, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
so that you're never to go out. If somebody does something wrong to you, you're not to go out and avenge yourselves as though God isn't going to get around to doing justice. God will give justice. When vengeance needs to be meted out, God will do so. The same thing's happening here. So you think that this person has a very wrong opinion about this thing, and you would like to correct them. What Paul is saying is, just zip it. You you don't need to worry about correcting him. The Lord will correct him, as Josh preached last week, right? One who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He will do it. You don't need to perfect them. And I'm not saying that we don't want to move, again, people from weaker to stronger, but don't think that this is your goal in life, is to fix everyone's opinions. It's not. You don't need to do it. You are here to be an encouragement to them on the things that you know, those very sure things that have been commanded. But when it comes to opinions, if you think they're wrong, let the Lord fix them. Because trust me, he'll have a lot to fix on you as well. I know, I've seen how you people live your lives. Sorry. <laughs> so there is something of an encouragement here. As Jesus looks at people in Matthew 12, he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Every careless opinion would be in there as well. So if you're worried that that this is going to go unrighted, don't. Jesus knows better than you. He will correct it at times. This is probably a good time to stop for just a second. I know you're thinking you probably shouldn't stop. You should probably just keep going. But we're going to stop for just a second to talk about what kind of judgment this is. Because I don't want anyone to leave thinking, well, I talk a lot about us not being judged and, and us being passed over in judgment because Christ was judged. So why are we being judged here? But again, it's clear from this entire passage that Paul's not talking about unbelievers. This is not a judgment where Paul says, God is actually deciding based on what you do whether or not you get into heaven, whether or not you truly have the Spirit of God or any of those things. He, he clearly thinks everyone involved here, brothers and sisters are being named all over the place, are believers in the Lord. But nevertheless, we will be judged. We're just not going to be held accountable. Just because we are not held accountable for our sins, and that accountability has been held over to Jesus. So Jesus was held accountable for our sins. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus was raised victorious for our sins. That accountability has been paid. That doesn't mean that it's not in God's best interest and in our best interest for God to show his grace and to give reward for where we do wrong and where we do well. So he's going to sit us down and he will open our hearts and he will open our minds and he will open the works that we have done in life. And he will say, friend, this was bad, but you were forgiven. We will see the grace of God. You'll see the mercy of God. And he will also look over here and say, friend, this was excellent. Well done, good and faithful servant. And you will see the reward of God and the pleasure of God and entering into his joy. It will be something of a time of reflection on our lives when God will himself expose all of our works, all the while covering us in Jesus Christ. So, if you worry that others are getting away with things, they're living a little bit too well in the liberality of Christ, and need to be reined in a bit, don't. And Christ, Christ can do that. He doesn't need you to do that. If you think and you worry that others are haughty in their abstinence, they're too uptight, They don't really truly understand the freedom that the Lord has provided to them. And you suspect that maybe, possibly, they feel like they've earned something before God by their abstinence. 
Don't worry about them, friends. Christ will handle all of that. But this quickly takes a turn. It's not so much just an encouragement as it is a warning. It's not so much about how your brother or sister is going to be judged, but more importantly, it is about how you, friend, will be judged. And as I read it, it is about how I will be judged. It's a warning. We need to be cautious. We need to be cautious in how we handle ourselves. We need to be cautious in the way we talk to brothers and sisters. We need to be cautious in the way we think about brothers and sisters. It is quite easy to become judgmental, unmerciful, and ungracious when you only think about others doing wrong. But when you remember that you yourself will be judged, that God himself will stand and open your heart to the world, and you know that he has been gracious to you and kind to you, it is those who understand the mercy of God truly who are the most merciful, and those who have truly felt the grace of God who are the most gracious. So, in the process of looking at the works that will be done through you and for you, remember that God will say before all of the world whether you have done ill or good, and he will expose the reasons why you did that. If you abstain from things, perhaps it is not so much because you think that the thing is wrong. Perhaps it is to gain credibility. Maybe it's to make yourself look holy. If you partake in things, maybe it's not because you actually give thanks to God, but simply because your flesh just really wanted it. And you're not honestly honoring the Lord with what you're doing. You're just acting in such a way because you just want to. Neither of those two things is acceptable. Seek in your heart the way you are acting and how you are handling yourself. Be cautious because one day God will judge you. God will say to you, either well done, good and faithful servant, or this was wrong and it's a sin, even if he's gracious and he forgives you. More than all of that, though, watch how you speak, watch how you act, and watch how you care for your brothers and sisters in the Lord. It is easy, easy, especially in today's age, I feel. I, I mean, it was clearly an issue in Paul's day, but... It's easy for us to, to be able to find niches of people who just think like us. That's what the entirety of the internet is basically about. It is finding the eight people who share every opinion that you share and becoming BFFs with them. That is not possible here. It's just never going to happen. We're always going to differ on opinions. But Paul wants to remind you, there is one Lord, and he has received each and every one of you. There is one Father, there's one Spirit, there's one baptism, and there is one body that you have been brought into. One. And so, what God has brought together, do not separate for, the, for simply your opinion. A man's opinion never separate. Let us pray. Father, give us wisdom in such things to know the difference between what the gospel demands of us, what you have demanded of us, and simply the things that we want, the opinions that we hold. Let us press one another forward into faithfulness, all the while allowing for that faith to be expressed with its differences according to our faith in you. Let us not press unessential matters and food and drink, how to look at one day as different, let us not look at such things and press them to become defining for us. 
Brother, may, may we keep only what you have said defines us as central. May we keep your word as central, the very commands that you have given as central. In doing so, may we look to your word to know it and follow it with whole hearts, with happy and joyful obedience. And by this, may you be praised by the lives of your people. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing our song of response, Holy, Holy, Holy.